These are amazing times in which we live. That's why the message today is entitled Sleeping with the Enemy. I don't know how the world can't be awake. I don't know what else God is going to allow to happen to cause men and women to become aware that we are living in a crumbling world. Just recently, even as of today, a news bulletin went out that the water is drying up in Utah. Not enough water. It's a crisis level. But they don't know where the water is going to come from to provide for the inhabitants, for the residents of the cities that are affected by their water supply. You may also remember the Colorado Dam. The water levels are dangerously low. In California, the water levels are dangerously low. Lower than it's ever been. I was looking at a report by one of the park services in California. They said, if you were standing here a year and a half ago, you would be 100 feet below the water. And they were able to walk on that ground dry. And unearthed under the water were, was a town that once existed. They said, this town, this church, this store, this district, you would not have been able to see it a, a year and a half ago. But now the water is now 100 feet lower than it was. And you could drive all through that area. Vast desert is opening up in many of our western states. Couple that with fires. And then you see the raging floods in Europe washing away homes and towns. Mountains breaking apart from the saturation of rain. As one case in Germany, they had a year's worth of rain in one day. And it could not, the, the town could not find a way to saturate or to even absorb that water. What has to happen in our world for people to recognize that we're living in a crisis hour and that Jesus is soon to come? As the Apostle Paul says, all of creation is groaning. Creation is crying out for deliverance. And that is why the Lord is saying this is such a crisis hour that the people of God should not be sleeping with the enemy. And so pray for me this morning as the Lord has put this message on my heart. Let me get my, uh, my tonic. <clears throat> Honey, would you like some ginger tea? You've been coughing. You okay? All right. My wife makes such great ginger tea. I contribute a lot of that to why I'm able to get through my sermons. And uh, this will help significantly. Thank you. Well, right now, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for God to guide us this morning. Loving Father in heaven, Creation knows it. Your word has predicted it. And those who are sober and those who are awake can see and understand that we are on the verge of a stupendous crisis. World leaders are seeking ways to patch up our society, coming up with financial plans and trying to figure out how to stabilize a world economy a society, a social stigma that has now been racked again by a resurgence of this Delta variance. On one side, there is a, a hesitancy to even believe it's true, but on the other, the numbers of lost lives are mounting by the moment. And we pray, Lord, that as a people of urgency that we can hear your voice and we can be awakened by what we see if not only by what we read, 
And may your purpose and your will be accomplished, I ask, in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Honey, would you please, Ricky, come here for a moment. That's okay. Give my wife this ginger tea. I'll be just fine. She needs it. Love you, honey. It's for you. No sense not benefiting from what you make. <laughs> she gave it to me for my voice, and she needs it for hers. I'm going to talk about five things today that I want you to pay particular attention to. You may want to write them down or jot them down or store them in your memory. These five words that are going to shape the entirety of this message. The five words that I'm going to cover today are as follows. Opportunity, obligation, opposition, omnipotence, and outcome. I'm going to say that one more time, and I'll come back to them in the sermon. Opportunity, obligation, opposition, omnipotence, and outcome. Each one of these play a role in our lives as Christians. And I believe that many people come to the end of their lives while they're laying on their sickbed or their deathbed or they're wishing that things could have been different. In many cases, they rewind the videotape of their choices and they look at the opportunities presented to them that they did not take advantage of. And then they say, almost in a lamenting way, if only I had taken advantage of that opportunity. My life and my wife's life are along that same line because when we just got married, we were not married a year yet, when the invitation came to join the Heritage Singers. And we asked her mom, what should we do? And her words were, opportunity knocks once. If we didn't take that opportunity, our lives would have been vastly different. Because God opened through the Heritage Singers a door and another door. It was through that door that the passion for being a pastor was awakened. It was in the Heritage Singers that I met Doug Batchelor, Pastor Doug Batchelor. And then we eventually worked together. I got my start in ministry with him. And then the doors in Northern California Conference were opened. And the door to being ordained was opened. And now 34, 35 years later, it all began when her mother said, opportunity knocks once. As the people of God, we are confronted with the very same thing. Opportunity, obligation, opposition, omnipotence, and outcome. And today, in the context of the title, Sleeping with the Enemy, I want you to pay particular attention to how all five of these will be in our resume of success or in our resume of failure if we overlook any one of them thinking that they are irrelevant or need not be a part of our experience as Christians. But let's begin by going to Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 18, the scripture reading for today. We're going to look at what I believe a story that has all five components in it. And you may have heard the story before, but today you're going to see it in the framework of these five words and in the context of the fact that we're living in a day where each one of these is being presented to us and the outcome will be determined by what we do 
with the four words that come before that. Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 18 in the Bible reads, And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, Let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. <laughs> There's so many stories in my brain right now, i got to pray for my head to slow down. I feel like a super high-weight shield. It's just this, these thoughts are just flooding my mind. I'm thinking, what would have happened if Danny Shelton did not take the opportunity that God challenged him with in that darkened room of wondering where God's people are and how the message would get around the world? We wouldn't be here. This building... If you reversed the videotape 36 or 37 years, you would see Illinois, southern Illinois, this area, the way that it was, would have been had Danny bypassed that opportunity. Just the modern understanding of men and women who grab on to God's reign and ride the horse of possibilities throughout but our world today, let me begin by shaping what I see and what God has shown me. I want you today to stand with me and observe a world transformed into a satanic laboratory. All around us, Satan is experimenting on the minds of young men and young women, boys and girls, husband and husbands and wives, political and financial and religious leaders. Behind this satanic laboratory, the agencies of darkness are conducting what I call a sleep study. What can I do to the mind of these individuals while they sleep in such a crisis hour? What can I do and what can I perpetrate in the lives of those who, if they were only awake, their story would be quite different? Their possibilities would be far more advanced, but here they are, behind the walls of my laboratory in my agency of darkness. And I am privileged, Satan says, to conduct on these sleeping individuals a sleep study. You see, Satan's unnumbered subjects are sedated and confined in a suspended state. That's the only thing I can come up with when I see the world the way it is. When I see the fires in the West and the floods and the rising temperatures and the depleting water supplies, and people racked wondering what tomorrow is going to bring. When I see an economy on an uncertain foundation and a government still pouring millions into our pockets and I'm asking, where is it coming from? I see that men are trying to do all they can to fix a world that is irreversibly broken. And Satan has them sedated and confined almost to a degree beyond their ability to even perceive they are in a satanically sedated state. Their hearts are beating, yet they are oblivious to their darkened surroundings. Reduced to shells are the minds of a people that withdrew from faithfulness. When you think about Christians that once walked in the avenues of truth and light and, and the certainty of God's prophecies, and they walk away from that and somehow declaring, I used to be an Adventist. As, as though that is something to boast about. 
Oh, I used to be a member of that church, but I, I'm free now. As a train off the tracks, where is it going? I'm free now. As tires that have finally disconnected itself from the car, I'm free now. Unaware of their depleted condition, their voices are silenced, their hands are bound, and their choices are non-existent because they are sedated in this laboratory of darkness as Satan conducts a sleep study. They have suspended their freedoms by a departure from spiritual devotion. If I could just tell you how vitally important it is to be devoted spiritually. If I could only give you a nickel for every time that God did something in my life, you would be far better financially than you are right now. God is amazing. But so many times we don't call on God. And I want to tell you there are days during the week I'm driving, I'm pulling over, pulling into a campus, pulling into a building, pulling into a store, pulling into a restaurant. I say, Father, what do I do next? And boom, out of the clear blue on this massive campus like SIU, God says, here they are. They got all the answers. You need the president? His office is down there. God directs. The Bible says, and I, I was filled with tears this week when my wife and I saw what God did as he drove from one location to the other in southern Illinois. And as I was bowing my head in the car with tears coming out of my eyes, God said to me, the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. And I said, oh, Lord, give me no reason to glorify in what is happening. I want all the glory to go to you. But, Father, show me, show me and I will give you all the praise. You see, friends, when we depart from spiritual devotion, we are operating on our own, and our voices become silenced, our hands become bound, and our choices are non-existent, because the only choices that will matter in the end of the video is the choices that God put before us, the opportunities, the obligations that we took advantage of. You see, it's a strange scene hovering over the world. And the reason why is this world has turned its back on God, hoping to find answers in places that God will not be found. In a, in a lethargic state, this world is inhaling and exhaling the anesthesia of lamentation. They remain... Breathing, but they cannot move. And Satan exults as he chuckles to see who's in his satanic laboratory. Unbeknownst to satanic captivity, the world is sleeping with the enemy. But I want you to know this morning, this is not a sleep that binds the world in inactivity. This sleep... For those who are studying God's word, it shocks the sensibility. How can millions have their eyes open and not see the path of destruction? I often ask that question. How can they not see how the story is going to end by the choice they make? How can they see a crumbling world and deny its inevitable fall? How can we look at the news evening after evening and say, the next politician will have the answer. We're 46 down and not a single one of them have been able to resolve the problem of sin? How can they not see that raging floods and vicious fires and out-of-control weather are predecessors of a world on the brink of collapse? How can they not see it? 
You know how they're sleeping with the enemy. The prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 24, these sobering words, verses four and five. He said, the earth mourns and fades away. Look at that word, the earth mourns, the earth is in mourning, the earth is saying, how did I get this way? Who is gonna resolve the problems of my centuries and my millennia? The earth is mourning, is fading away. The world languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth languish. The earth, the Bible says, is also defiled under its inhabitants, why? because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinances, and broken the everlasting covenant. Men are receiving, as it were, a delivery from the company that they ordered their pleasure-loving products. But when the box is open, it's nothing but disappointment and sadness and a lack of satisfaction and, is, and a desire to get something more because so far as I have sought to satisfy my own desires, I've found no satisfaction. The world is not turning to God as it should. And I believe that God is giving us as a people time to, and this is my word, to calibrate our minds. To do what, friends? To, to line up our thoughts with his word and say it's a time, it's an hour to be awake. This is the hour to be urgent. When you study what's happening in the world, the apostle John diagnoses this scene, and he says, it is the consequence of a people that deliberately resisted the sobering influence of Jesus. What we're seeing today when people say, I don't need God in my life. It's amazing how on a plane that's going through turbulence, there are no atheists. Somebody inadvertently yells, God! <laughs> Amen, young man. Because they know that in that fleeting moment when life is just a razor's edge away, their beliefs are disabled. And they turn instinctively to the vacuum in their lives and say, God, fill it now hear my voice, I'm calling on you, I need you now. And praise God in those moments when my wife and I have been on those plane rides and we've called on God. He said to us, just buckle your seatbelts. The captain is in charge. Praise the Lord. God has not lost confidence in his plan and God's plans will come to fruition. But we are in the midst of a world, friends, injecting darkness into its veins. And it's in this hour that God is calling the church to put on their work clothes and get out the gospel tools and put new batteries in their lives and intensify the gospel message in the midst of a crumbling world, in the midst of a world falling apart. God is saying it is time for the church to wake up and rise up because somebody is yet to see the light. Somebody is yet to hear the gospel. Somebody will respond to the voice of a loving savior who says, come, the dinner is ready. 
Your mansion is built. Your robes have been sewn. And I have the gates open. I'm waiting for you to come in and see what I plan for you. I've given my life to save you. That's why, friends, the darker it gets, the brighter the people of God ought to be in these hours. The message to the church today, the message to the church today is one where we introduce the word opportunity. What is it, friends? Here's the opportunity text. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 14. The opportunity. The Lord says, the opportunity. Let me read the, let me read the diagnosis first because I talked about John's diagnosis. His diagnosis is clearly defined in John chapter 3 and verse 19. Let me read the diagnosis of what John has shown. This world is described in John 3 and verse 19. He says, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love what? Darkness rather than light because their deeds were what? Their deeds were evil. When you prefer darkness over light and a godless life over a prosperous God-filled life, you got to be dark. There's no way to have a satisfied life on this side of the coin when God is only on that side of the coin. You remember the disciples when they were fishing? In their own labor, they couldn't find the answers, but the Lord says, you're on the wrong side of the boat. Cast the net on the other side. But in a world that's injecting darkness into its veins, God is saying this is an hour of opportunity for the church. The opportunity text. I go now to Ephesians 5 and verse 14. The opportunity passage. Here's what the Bible says. Speaking to the church, therefore he says, let's read it together. Are you ready? Here we go. What is he saying? Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. Now, this is not a resurrection from death. This is a resurrection from inactivity. You see, the Israelites, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They had video games too. They had the internet. They found some way of getting connected. They sat down to eat and drink. They, they got involved in, in socializing. Nothing wrong with those things. But if all your life is uh, consumed by socializing, internet, having fun, and no work, I've heard a phrase years ago. It says, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Let me reverse that. All play and no work makes Jack a dull Christian. Young people sit there in the video arcades in, in Japan for days. I read the article, they wear diapers. These teenagers, they wear diapers. Because they connect around the world and they, they go into their mock war simulation games. They're in Japan, but they're fighting with somebody in Missouri and somebody in London and somebody in the Caribbean. They're connected so they cannot move because they're on a team of soldiers and their presence is needed. And I thought to myself, if those in Japan and China and in the Caribbean and in Europe and different parts of the world need each other to win a battle that is digitized, how will the people of God not know that we need each other in a battle that is not digitized but is literal and spiritual? And they sit there. I told you the story, but it fits right here. They found a young Japanese. He was 19 years old. 
He had died more than 18 hours ago, but because they were used to having them sit at their stations where they bring their food and their drinks, and they stay there and play war games for hours and days on end without moving, they thought he was just sleeping. They found him 18 hours later after this 19-year-old had died at his play station. Sleeping with the enemy. So when Paul says to the Christian, awake, he is saying this is the hour of opportunity. I'm going to say that again. The opportunity that you have today, the opportunity that you have right now, that God has given you this very moment, that God is going to give you this week, if that opportunity passes you by, it reminds me of a ride in New York City there at Coney Island by, by the beach. I remember years ago being on a merry-go-round. And they had a, a, they had a piece of board that extended out from the wall. And it was the, the desire, the desire of all the riders. If you paid a little extra, you got an outside horsey on the merry-go-round. And those that got an outside horsey, that horse went up and down. And when it went up and down, you had to reach out beyond the horsey and grab a ring as it went around. And if the ring was gold, you got a next, another free ride. <laughs> but if you missed the opportunity to get that seat, you had no opportunity to get the gold ring. See, all those on the inside didn't even have the opportunity. God has put his church on the outside, Amen. on the horse that rises and falls. We've got to put our own effort, reach out and grab the gold ring and get on God's ride. Because when we look back at our records, and I've been by the bedside of those who told me it didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to be this way. If I'd only done this when I was that age or that age or that age, my life would have been quite different. But the opportunity came and the opportunity went never to return again. This is why we should not think of ourselves as Unique in the sense that because of who we are, the opportunity will come back. Let me make a statement that I want you to, to grab and hold on to. Don't ever think of yourself as irreplaceable or dispensable. Some people say, I can't, I, I can't go home. If I don't do it, who will? Let me make a point. When you get sick and are laid up in the hospital, somebody else will do it. You think you're all that? The moment you leave town, somebody else is sitting in your seat. That's right. Guy one day called into work. He just wanted to take a day off. He called in and said to his supervisor, I'm not feeling <coughs> well. I need a day off. Supervisor said, that's okay. We have Bob from Account Temps. He's sitting in your seat. He's doing an excellent job. As a matter of fact, Bob is fitting in really well. Matter of fact, Bob is really excelling. He's doing your job very well. And the guy said, well, I, I think my throat is clearing up. I, I'm feeling a lot better now. Maybe I could be in. Oh, that's okay. Take as many days as you need. Bob is doing a great job. <laughs> Brother, none of us are irreplaceable. Don't think of yourself as unique. The only way that you are unique is not a, there's not a second person like you on the planet. Your DNA, God has made you to be special. God has a special purpose for your life. But if you ignore the opportunities that God presents to you, they will pass you by. And Bob, 
Well, sit in your seat. <laughs> Behave yourself, Bob. Bob doesn't miss an opportunity. When he's flying back and forth to the airport, he's got his arsenal of magazines. And he's not ashamed to say, here's a magazine, read it. Opportunities. People that walk past you in Walmart and in the store and in the malls and in the airports or sit next to you on the plane. I used to say, don't sit next to me on the plane when I'm by myself. You're going to get a Bible study. And it does happen. I find a way. I open my Bible and lay it before me. And, and the inquisitive passenger sitting next to me starts going. And almost inevitable, they said, what are you reading? The Bible. Oh, what is, you a preacher? Yeah, I'm a preacher. What are you reading? Like lady, I was sitting on American Airlines and I was reading my Bible this is when I was working on the Three Angels Messages booklet. And there was one seat between us, and she said, she said, I'm a Christian too. I said, have you heard about the Three Angels Messages? Get to the point. Don't dilly-dally, meander in the maze of mediocrity. Get to the point. She said, no, what is it? And I explained to her what the Three Angels Messages is, and she said, my husband is a Baptist pastor. I, I ain't never heard that. I can't wait till I get home to tell him about that. And I gave her one of the early versions of the booklet. And I said, if you need any more information, here's how you get in touch. I don't know what God is going to do with that, but all you got to do is plant the seed, right, Ressa? One plants, another waters, but what? God gives the increase. God will never bless a Bible study you never gave. God cannot plant cause a plant to grow when you never put a seed in the ground. And some folk think that somewhere along the way, they're going to be a harvest of souls and you ain't did diddly to even start the process. Didn't mean to say it like a New Yorker, but you didn't do diddly. But I'm amazed through the portal of 3ABN. I know that others of you, I know Shelly gets the calls and all of you that are on 3ABN radio and television. I know you get the messages. People either like what you said or don't like what you said, but we get the messages, right? We get the messages, Greg. We get them. And then humbly sometimes you respond back and say, well, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say that. I'm sorry I offended you. Sometimes we have to send them a beautiful rebuke and say that this is, this is not my hill to die on. I want you to reconsider your position. But there are people that are out there that are hearing what God is saying. And so when Paul says, awake, you who sleep, he is saying, this is not the hour for the people of God to be asleep. You see, the Christian is not only affected by spiritual corrosion, but we are witnessing in our world and in our church the slow, corrosive demolition of our foundation. Now, I don't want to be insensitive, but I cannot help but to refer back to the recent collapse of that condo in Surfside in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The message that came to my mind was, while people slept, they were unaware of the crisis developing beneath them. Servant of the Lord says, and the Bible says it, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walketh about like a roaring lion, 
seeking whom he may devour. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you having great wrath, because he knows he has but a short time. So while you are reclining in the comfort of complacency, you can feel the demons speeding past you to tear your family apart. And to burn up all the things you acquired in the next West Coast fire. That's why David the psalmist makes a statement about the importance of us understanding the security and the foundation of what God has given to us. There is a security in the foundation of the everlasting gospel. Can you say amen? There is a security in faithfulness and in honesty and being diligent. I would rather, somebody once said it this way, by the way, let me just give the credit. She's now resting in Jesus. But we had this old African-American lady that was in our church in California in Fairfield and uh, Sister Travis. She said, Pastor, when they interviewed me to come to that church, she said, we're not looking for a pastor to tell us what to do. We're already, we already a working church. We just want somebody to keep us together. And she said, Pastor, our motto is we rather wear out than rust out. <laughs> and I thought, that's a good thing. That's why that passage is so vital and important. God is looking for those who rather wear out. I'm going to have a vacation one day, and my first vacation is going to be a thousand years long. Amen. But vacation hasn't come yet. There's no such, if you find it, show it to me. I have never found the word retired in the Bible. Can you imagine Elijah, Elijah saying, you know, I'm taking a year off, Lord. I understand what's happening on Mount Carmel, but I got other plans. No, my brethren, as long as God gives you breath, that's why pastors that retire can't retire. They may get off the church's payroll, but they still have to find something to do. Why? Because when there's a passion down in your soul, when there's a passion burning in your heart, you understand the need to preserve the foundation for those who come behind you that they may find you faithful. That's why David the psalmist says in Psalm 11 and verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It is in this generation that the mission and the message of Nehemiah is imperative. And when we go through it, you're going to see that Nehemiah has the only prescription for a sleeping Christian in an eroding world. Let's look at it together. Open your Bibles to Nehemiah. The rest of the sermon is going to be in this book. Nehemiah. Nehemiah is surveying. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. His responsibility is to be pleasant when he comes before the king to be nice and cheerful but he comes before the king he's not cheerful he's not happy he's just sullen and sad and the reasons are outlined in nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 3 and this is in the king james version and i read nehemiah chapter 1 verse 3 okay let me see if i have it there i left that out but i'm gonna go ahead and read it for you you have your bibles and they said unto me the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. 
The reason I use the King James Version in this passage is because it says the remnant. Do we believe that God has given us the remnant message? Now that's an amen. But the devil is working on his plan is that you may have the remnant message, but he's determined that you don't end up to become a member of the remnant people. Because when the shaking is done, the question is, will you still be here? When the winds are no longer blowing and the thunder is no longer rumbling and the lightning is no longer flashing in the great controversy, will you be a part of that final army that will stand as a people into whose life God has blown the breath of power and strength when God surrounds you with that impregnable armor of the final gospel call? Will you be in that number? The test is going on now and you'll only understand that if you partake and take advantage of the opportunities. And I look at people that I know, I'm looking at them out here. I know Moses is a man who understands opportunity and Shelly and Jill and so many of you here understand opportunity because 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you're thinking and breathing, what next? And there's so many capacities in our church. We have people that are thinking that way, thinking that way, opportunity, what can I do next? What can I do to preserve the integrity of the foundation that God has given me? Well, Nehemiah shows the distress of the Jews and the city indeed is in ruin. And can I say at this point, as I look at the framework of the seventh day Adventist church, I want to say that the church in all of its forms are not exempt from the crumblings of society. Because there are those in these closing hours beginning to question and re-question things that have been confirmed by God's word. And they are now going off in tangents, little veins of activity, pulling them to the left and to the right. As I, as I said to one person this week that I had a very intense phone call with, they called me about how they were upset about this vaccine and that vaccine. And they're going to hold a symposium to address issues that they're passionate about. And I said, stop. First it was the red states versus the blue states. Then it was black lives matter or it doesn't matter. Then it was COVID or a hoax. Now it's vaccine or not. And I said to them, you know what I'm seeing happening in our church? The urgency of the proclamation of the three angels messages is getting pushed further and further down in the laundry basket. And when all those clothing of issues that mean nothing to salvation are finally addressed, Somebody might say, okay, yeah, here we have a little, uh, the three angels' messages. What do we do with that? And they couldn't help but to say, you're right, pastor. I said, let people make their own choices. But God has called you to take advantage of the opportunity to rise up and build his kingdom. And none of these issues will be relevant in the final analysis of the proclamation of the everlasting gospel. So Nehemiah sees the city, he sees the condition and Nehemiah two and verse five, God moves on Nehemiah to get involved in the project. And the Bible says in Nehemiah two and verse five, and I said to the king, as the king saw his displeasure, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Let me say something. I love the fact that Nehemiah didn't say that I may get some other folk to help me to rebuild it. Right, Ricky? He says, I am going to do what I need to do. And if God wants 
to put people with me, fine. Let me translate that. I am so thankful that when I share this project, people in our church, people in 3ABN, says I'm on board. I was in the same place that Nehemiah is. If they don't, I will do what God has called me to do. You see, because whether they stand with you or not, God's mission never fails because numbers are on your side. Come on, Gideon's army is a reminder of that. God narrowed that 32,000 army down to 300 and told Gideon, who was hiding in a wine vat, coward, it's not up to you to win the battle. I'll fight the battle for you. And so whether people join with you or not, the question in the final analysis is, what did you do for the kingdom? What advantage did you take of the opportunities presented before you? And Nehemiah said, that I may rebuild it. Now I can see one man with a bucket of, of, of clay and, and concrete and all these things and stone. And I could see him out there mixing the basket and pouring the water and getting all the rock and getting the steel out of the back of his pickup truck. And people saying, what are you doing? And he says, I'm rebuilding Jerusalem by yourself. But that was not the case. And here's the point. When Nehemiah revealed his findings on the heels of his assessment, because God sent him on, a, on, on a, an incognito mission to see if, in fact, what he had heard by letter is, in fact, the truth. And God sent him. And then Nehemiah stood and told those who were willing to listen what he saw. And look what the Bible says. Look what the Bible says. Nehemiah 2, verse 17 and 18. Then I said to them, now he's speaking to the audience as I'm speaking to you. He said, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And then he said, let me tell you what God showed me. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. And when they saw the fire in Nehemiah's eyes, when they heard the passion in his voice, when they, they understood that he's going whether they go or not, they said, let us rise up and build. And the Bible says, they set their hands to this good work. Opportunity, transition to obligation. They said, this is not just your opportunity. This is our obligation. Do you feel obligated to the person who lives next to you that doesn't know the truth? Does it even bother you when you walk down the aisles in the store that you shop? that you're passing someone that may die tomorrow and you were inches away and they didn't even know that you didn't pray this morning to make a difference in their lives. I'm convinced that God will send us to whomever he wants us to go to if we say, Father, your obligation is my opportunity and my opportunity will become my obligation. See, I don't want you to be comfortable being church members. That's a privilege. But the opportunity of church membership is that God didn't save you by works. God saved you for works. And when he comes, 
He says in Revelation 22 and verse 12, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give to every man according as his work shall be. They said this is our obligation. God is calling us as God called Nehemiah. God is calling us to unite with the Nehemiahs of today. If you see there's a work to be done at 3ABN, stand with the administration. If there's a work to be done here, stand with the administration here. Wherever God puts you, wherever God sends you, when you see the work of God needs to be done, saying, let us rise up and build together. Can I get an amen? But there's an interesting passage that really it came to my request. It came to me that this interesting question that was asked in the context of the building project. Look at Nehemiah 2 and verse 6. This interesting question. <laughs> then the king said to me, this is him speaking to Nehemiah, the queen also sitting beside him, he's looking at Nehemiah and he's asking this question. How long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. In other words, Nehemiah said, well, I should be done by such and such a time. This is how much time I need. But this is what I got out of that passage. It is not important to know how long your journey is going to be. It is not important to know how long God is going to take. What is important is to make a decision that you will join God in that journey regardless of how long the journey is going to be. Yeah. Some people say, and I've heard this, well, I could give you 15 minutes. What am I going to do with 15 minutes? The saddest phrase that I hear, and I'm sure this is, I'm not unique, and I, maybe you've been in the same situation. The saddest thing that you hear when you need help I don't have the time. And let me make this clear. There's no intent to give you guilt. But I want you to examine what your week is used for. I want you to examine the quadrants of your life, your social, mental, spiritual, and physical life. And ask yourself, is there any time in there that I could dedicate to the work of God? Can I go out in 15 minutes or a half an hour? Can I take 35 minutes or one hour and just go around my community, get my own plastic bags and hang them on the door or put them on the fences of my neighbors? If I could just do that for 15 or 20 minutes and come back home, those are 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 minutes of seeds just planted that are going to germinate. They're going to make a difference in somebody's life. And I've seen that. So we don't have to ask the question, how long? And that's why it's perturbing. I remember when Pastor Dwight Nelson, he was so passionate. He had just come from a trip over in India. He said, I just came from India where the name of Jesus is just becoming known by some of the people that are there. And he was so angry. He said, and you arrogant Adventists are asking, when will Jesus come? It's not up to you to know when. It's up to you to get ready for Jesus to come. It's up to you to work that you may hasten his coming. Can you say amen? amen? You see, why do we want Jesus to come so badly? Oh, there are many reasons. We want suffering to end. Can I get an amen? We want crime and violence and all the sadnesses that we bear to finally go away. But brethren, we have the privilege and opportunity to hasten the coming of the Lord. Because he says, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations and... Then the end will come.
So if you're preaching the gospel in your locality, God doesn't say go to 50 mile radius, but work in the vineyard that's around your house. The people that pass you by, the people that smile at you in your neighborhood, the neighbors that you know. I remember knocking on the door of one of our neighbors. And I was giving out a little booklet, and I was giving out a CD, and he opened the door this wide, and he said to me, I'm a Pentecostal. I don't need anything. I'm not, I don't want anything. I said, I'm not asking you for anything. And he reiterated the statement. He said, it like one eye. I said, I'm just giving you a CD. I'm just giving you a booklet. I'm just saying, hello, neighbor. I'm right next door. And he took it and, but it was on the inside. (laughs) What he did with it is not my obligation. Because see, I pray when, if you let that material get in your house, I'm going to say, Lord, turn the flashlight on. (laughs) Let him trip over that magazine and don't let him throw it away. You heard the story about somebody who threw away an evangelistic flyer, got sick of it and threw it out of their window or the car at a bus stop. Somebody at the bus stop picked it up and got baptized five months later. So God says, my word will never return to me void. What do you say? You cannot do anything against the truth, only for the truth. The apostle Paul says that, and I believe that. But if you take advantage of the opportunities, God's obligation will become your obligation. That's why Matthew says it so wonderfully. And thank you, Luis, for this text from last week. I couldn't shake it when he read it. Matthew 24, 46, blessed is that servant, blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. As the Negroes would say down in the South, the Negro spiritual, I keep so busy working for my Jesus, ain't got time to die. That's when we were Negroes. (laughs) Different now, African-Americans. As my good friend, Elder Cleveland, says, we've been given so many names, I don't know where we're going to be next. (laughs) (laughs) But the work is up to us. The duration is up to God. Can you say amen? Amen. But there's 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 a disgusting passage in this story. And I use the word disgusting because it disgusted me when I read it. Let me, let me build it up. In Nehemiah chapter three, you know, for those of you that like to do Bible trivia, Shelly and Jill, you'll appreciate this. The word rebuild is mentioned 40 times. Coincidentally, no. 40 is a generational number. 40 times the word rebuild is mentioned in chapter 3. But there's one disgusting passage in the midst of all of that. Look at Nehemiah chapter 3 and verse 5. This really bothered me. And it talked about the fact that not everybody gets on board when you get excited. Next to them... The, the, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. Watch this. The workers down the ladder were busy, but those up the ladder said, I ain't doing anything. Let them do it. You read the story. It's a startling story. The nobles, you know what the word noble mean? The upper class. Those guys who, they call the shots. You do this, you do that. I've learned that when you labor with your people, you have more influence than them laboring for you. Did you hear what I said? Don't just tell me what to do. Do it with me. 
Leaders that are on the field, getting their hands dirty, getting their lives involved in the process, have far greater influence than just sending people to work while you sit in your ivory towers or your plush offices calling the shots. I'm one of those that know what, the, what it means to put on jeans. I got jeans. Got a recent pair from Walmart. Sorry, from Rural King for $9.99. Don't have to pay 50 bucks for jeans. I learned the Southern Illinois secret. <laughs> and they work just as well. They look good. God is saying, get out your Southern Illinois jeans and let's hit the field. Let's not be, let's not be perturbed by the changing of the weather because the, the, the summer is going to pass over and then the devil is going to pull back the curtain and say, well, now it's cool weather. You don't want to go out now. Why don't you wait till spring? And that vicious cycle will happen every year. It's winter. You don't want to go out now. And then that'll be our excuse that we can, well, it's too cold to go out. Well, look at this quote from Prophets and Kings. I don't have a lot of them, but this one is amazing. Prophets and Kings, page 639. In every religious movement, there are some who, while they cannot deny that the cause is God's, still hold themselves aloof, refusing to make any effort to help. It were well for such ones to remember the record kept on high. That book in which there is no omission, no mistakes, and out of which they will be judged. Summarizing it this way, there are a lot of Christians who are doing nothing, but there are no Christians that have nothing to do. James says it this way in James 2 and verse 18. But someone will say, I'm Adventist, I'm Baptist. He said, you have faith. I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith together by my works. If you like baseball, where's your baseball glove? Where's your baseball bat? If you believe it's going to rain, as, come on, Louise, thank you. Pray for rain, and all the people got together on the afternoon when they got back to church waiting for rain, and the little girl came with her umbrella. And they said to her, why'd you bring an umbrella? She said, aren't you praying for rain? Just like the people praying in Rhoda's house. Peter knocking on the door, they said, we're praying for you to be free. He's at the door. Nah, prayer doesn't work that quick. Oh, yes, it does. God knows when the prayer ought to be answered. What do you say? So don't ever, don't ever doubt. We are not saved by works. Let me make it very clear. We are saved by grace through faith. However, works reveal something deeper than God's act of salvation. Works reveal something far deeper than God's singular act of salvation. And James makes it clear in James 2 and verse 24. Notice what he says. You see then that a man is, what is the next word? Justified by works and not by faith alone. We're saved by grace through faith, but we are justified, meaning what that means is God is saying, I did not impute and impart my righteousness to you without you realizing that this brings you to an obligation. I am so glad I've imparted and imputed my righteousness to you because now 
you are on the field working with me. Doesn't make sense to hire somebody who doesn't want to work and waiting for a paycheck. That's why Nehemiah's record is so vitally important. You see, friends, as I read Nehemiah 4 and verse 1, what I want you to get is Satan is not concerned about saved Christians. Let me say that again. I want you to hear that. Satan is not concerned about saved Christians. He's concerned about saved Christians who work. Right? He doesn't care where you go to church. He doesn't care what you believe. If what you believe keeps you shackled into inactivity, he is not concerned. He is only concerned when what you believe has so deeply rooted, taken foundation deep down in your life that, as one writer says, it's so deeply shut up in my bone, I can't keep silent. Got to do something about it. If what you believe has not moved you to do something about it, you'll never know what opportunity and obligation is all about. But when you know about opportunity and obligation, only then will you see the hand of opposition, the third O. Opportunity, Nehemiah, obligation, those standing with him. When they got busy, Satan got concerned about those who entered the work. Look at Nehemiah 4 and verse 1. The third O, opposition. Nehemiah 4 and verse 1. But it so happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. Oh, you know what, friends? Don't be concerned about those who laugh at progress. And don't be put off by people saying, now, why, why are you going to give out tracts? We want to go do this. It's okay to do either one but don't let the mocking and the jeering of those who want to prevent you from doing God's work cause you to back away from the passion of sharing your faith. And be sure about it. When you get busy, Satan will be furious and very indignant. But who cares when God is on your side? I don't care. And believe me, I've been through a lot of battles, some of my own making. But God is faithful. And when God is not done with you, he'll pull you out of the quagmire of your own foolishness and dust you off and say, get to Nineveh. You smell like a fish, but go and preach anyway. Some of us become fish-smelling Christians because we disobey God. But God does not remove the sermon. He had that sermon for, Nehe he had that sermon for, for Jonah to preach, and he said, if you've got to get to Nineveh like, smelling like a fish, go. It wouldn't have been that way if you didn't disobey and I had, a lot of knee, I had a lot of Jonah times in my life. Come on, say amen, somebody, if you know what I mean. You've had some too. The opposition. Satan will always become furious and indignation will fill his heart when he knows that he cannot get you to abandon the work. But notice what happens. When you don't abandon the work, you transition from opportunity. What's the next one? Obligation. What is the next one? Opposition. It's going to happen. Don't expect the work of God to go forward without opposition. going to be opposition. Don't say, to the other, don't say to the other football team, stop hitting me. I just want to get to the goal line. I just want to get to the goal line. Why do you got to hit me? Just get your check. Give me the, just lay down when I run towards you. Ain't going to happen. <laughs> You're going to get hit. That's a part of the game. 
That's his job, to hit you in your finances, hit you in your family, hit you in your marriage, hit you in your relationships. He wants to punch the lights out of you so that you can get up with a black eye and say, I am done with this Christian stuff. The moment I came to 3ABN, everything fell apart. That's what's supposed to happen. But like the song by Casting Crowns, your life is not falling apart, it's falling into place. I love that line. Your world is not falling apart. It's falling into place. But God's got to tear down your world and build up his. Now let's go from opposition to omnipotence. Are you ready for it? Amen. Nehemiah 4, verse 69. Look at omnipotence. God loves showing up. So we built the wall, Nehemiah 4, verse 69. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. For the people, say it with me, friends, had a mind to work. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arab, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed. What did they do? That they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. You wonder why there's confusion in the church? That's the reason why. But I love verse 9. Nevertheless, come on, say nevertheless with me. Nevertheless. That means I don't care what the enemy does. Nevertheless, what, are our, what is our obligation? We made our prayers. To whom? To our God. And because of them, we set a watch against them when? Day and night. You got to be awake in the day. You got to be awake at night. What does that mean? Always the people of God are not safe for one hour from one moment without prayer and the study of God's word. You got to put on the armor, but you cannot fall asleep. You got to be awake. But notice opportunity, obligation, opposition, but omnipotence. God ain't worried. He sent one angel to kill 185,000 of his opposition. God has unlimited resources. Whosoever call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You call on God. He does like he did for Peter. He'll reach down and pull you out so that your plans will not overcome you or suck you in and drown you. God will never give you a responsibility that's too great for you to handle. When God sends it your way, remember, two-thirds of the angels did not leave the kingdom. And he said it. Like Elisha said to his servant, they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Omnipotence is on your side. But here's one of the problems we have. Opposition will be great and discouragement may set in. But here's the reason why it may. Verse 10. Nehemiah 4 verse 10. Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing. <laughs> I had to smile when I read this. And there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build a wall. Hold on, Shelly. Relax. I'm coming at you. High on the list of the reason why Christians are inactive is there is so much rubbish in their lives. Get some Christian garbage bags. Get yourself a dumpster. Get rid of that rubbish in your life. Come on, somebody. Say amen. Rubbish. 
Get off of the internet and get on the streets. Rubbish. Stop taking photos of yourself. Who cares what you look like? I got six likes. I got a thumb down. Don't mean squat in the context of eternal life. Stop putting your face on there and realize there's a role being sown for you. Get the rubbish out of your life. High on the list. When Christ fills your life, when the passion of the work for the kingdom fills your life, there is less room for rubbish. Work for the night is coming. Can you say amen? amen. But the devil is still relentless. He's still determined to destroy. Look at verse 13. He's looking for ways in. He's trying to find out what he can do to bring you down. He has strategies that God reveals to us. And what is the strategy of destroying our worship? The Bible reveals that. Nehemiah 4 and verse 13. Therefore, I position men behind the what? Lower parts of the wall at the openings. And I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Let me tell you what jumped out at me at this passage. The devil came in, not through the roof, not through the doors, but through the lower parts. Oh, can I tell you, brethren, guard your lower thoughts. Guard your lower entertainment. Guard your lower desires. Guard your low attitudes about people. Stop putting people down. Stop chewing each other up as members of the same family. Stop chewing up fellow believers, thinking that God could bless it. Guard the lower parts of your wall. Because you might think the devil is coming in on the top. He will come in on the places that you least expect. We've got to remain awake and guard the lower avenues of our soul. And we also have to be committed. Look at verse 14. Committed in spite of opposition because quite a bit is at stake. Nehemiah 4.14, and I looked and arose and said to the nobles, who, does he, who is he speaking to? Who's he speaking to? Say it again. And arose and said to the nobles, who is he saying to? Come on, say it. The nobles. Say it one more time. Who is Nehemiah speaking to? If you remember earlier, the nobles didn't want to do anything. Now he's talking to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people. What is he saying to them? And this is the message to us. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. Praise God for a great and awesome God. And fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. So you see, a lot is at stake, friends. It's not just their families. It's your family. It's your house. It's your children. It's your sons. It's your daughters. And they may be complacent and may even decide to fall asleep in the middle of the battle. But it's your responsibility to not be afraid of what you see coming and put a valiant fight like the Apostle Paul. He said, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I kept the faith. This is not the hour to stand back. This is the hour where the army of God must stand and fight for the salvation that was once delivered to us. Fight in your prayer life. Fight in your study life. Fight in your witnessing life. Get busy and work while there's time. Look at verse 17. What do you do? How do you work? Verse 17 of Nehemiah 4. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves. What do they do? They were loaded. 
so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other held a weapon. They were probably from southern Illinois. Everybody out here has a weapon. We're all ready to go to work. The Bible in one hand, a nine millimeter in the other. Now that's not what the Bible is saying, but they had a weapon. What does that mean? The weapon is God's word, the sword of the spirit. They were ready for the battle. Work, but don't keep God's word far away from you so that you can reach out to it and have it in time of need. Can you say amen? They worked diligently, but when they started working diligently, the devil came in and tried to distract them. Let's wind this thing up. Look at Nehemiah 6. We're going all, all the way down. Nehemiah 6, verse 1 and 2. When Satan cannot get through the low walls, when he can't stop you and delay and you become obligated and you see God working, he tries another tactic. And what is that? Nehemiah 6, verse 1 and 2. Now it happened. Here he is again. Your enemies will come back over and over again. And there he is, our enemy, Sanballat, Tobiah. Now they added somebody else, Geshem, the Arab. And the rest of our enemies, you know, it's amazing to me that when the devil doesn't like you, he get all the people together that don't like you. Isn't it amazing? If he don't like you, all, you, all of a sudden, why, are they, why is everybody treating me that way? Because the devil don't like you working for God. And the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the door in the gates. He goes on, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, hey, let's go to, let's go to Olive Garden. Let's have a dinner together. Let's meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. Let's go to the mall together. Watch out when the devil start inviting you to do things that you like to do. You like Chinese food? Let's have Chinese food. That's what, that's what, these, that's what these Satanists did in Carbondale when I did the series on unclean spirits. I got a letter from one of their grand wizards. And he said, let's have lunch at the vegetarian restaurant in Carbondale. Let's have a talk. You'll see how much we have in common. You know what I did? I deleted his email. I didn't go. Give no place to the devil when he appeals to your appetite. He found out that I like vegetarian food. He even picked the restaurant, Richie, Ricky, told me where to meet the time of day. And he says, and if we get together and have a conversation, you'll find out how much we have in common. I read that email and said, circular bin, empty it. Watch out when the enemy tries to bring you to his point of conversation in the areas of your life that he knows are delightful to you. The enemy constantly seeks to gauge the work among God's people. Leave the enemy to God. Focus on the God of the work. You see, we went through opportunity, obligation, opposition, omnipotence. But we didn't get the outcome yet. When Nehemiah got that invitation, he said, but they thought to do me harm at the end of verse two, but they thought to do me harm. Just stand right by the piano and I'll join you there, but go ahead, go ahead um, and have a seat, Dan and Stephanie, wait right there. He said, they invited me, but I know they thought to do me harm. Pray for godly wisdom.
Can somebody say amen? amen? Pray when your moments are fleeting and you're wondering, I do, I do need to take a break from some work. I do need some lunch. Don't have lunch with your enemies because they will seek ways of doing you harm. Ellen White says, in the service of God, there need be no despondency, no wavering, no fear. The Lord will more than fulfill the highest expectation of those who put their trust in him. When the devil calls you down from God's work, respond by getting down on your knees. What did Nehemiah say when he called? Look at verse 3. Nehemiah said, so I sent messengers to them. I wouldn't even go myself, saying I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and come down to you? And how does the story end? We got to get to the outcome. The outcome. How does the story end? When you endure, when God's opportunity becomes your obligation and you see God working, opposition will come in, omnipotence will step up, and God will see the work through, and God will see you through to the outcome. And you look back and say, it was worth it working for God. He brought me through it all. Look at verse 15 and 16, my last text. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. The king asked, how long? 52 days. And it happened when our enemies, all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations around us saw these things, that they were very, that they were what? They were very disheartened in their own eyes. You know what they said? We couldn't even stop them. For they perceived that this work was done by our God. Come on, church, say amen. The outcome. Jill and Gray, keep going forward faithfully. The outcome is in God's hands. Moses, leaders, elders, Shelly, keep planning. Joe, all of our elders, deacons, deaconesses, keep working. Stay to the plow because God is in the work. When the work is finally done, church members, brothers and sisters, the enemy will say, there's no way that Nehemiah could have done this. God did the work. Don and Janelle, God is working through you. All of you that are working on the fields, our greeters, those who are behind the scenes, our security, we're all together in this. God wants us all. But the message cannot be proclaimed by those not living it. The message cannot be shared by those not dedicated to it. The message cannot be modeled by those not transformed by it. You see, mere religion may change the way you think, but Christ will change the way we live. Mere Christianity may, is man's attempt to be accepted by God, but Christ in the life is a divine act of making men acceptable to God. Mere religion gives us something to believe, but Christ-centered conversion gives us something to do. Mere religion invites us to follow a creed, but true religion empowers us to follow Christ. Mere religion is man's attempt to reach God, but Jesus is God's fail-safe plan to reach man, and I praise him for that. Mere religion is centered on a relationship with teachings about God, but only Jesus can form, transform religion into a relationship with God. Mere religion seeks to transform us through information, but Jesus can change us through transformation. And finally, mere religion cannot arouse those sleeping with the enemy, but true Christ-centered religion will awaken us 
to work with Christ. I left a twist for the end. I talked about Nehemiah all the time, but the sermon was called Sleeping with the Enemy. What's the twist? Here it is. What does God want to do for us? 1 Kings 19.5, I, I waited for Elijah to give me the salutation. You see, when Elijah had been running from the work and hid under a broom tree, the Bible says in 1 Kings 19.5, then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, what did he say? Arise and eat. Today, my brothers and sisters, God is saying to us, it's time to wake up. It's time for us to arise. If God is speaking to your heart and you want to arise, be a part of God's work, whether it's at 3ABN or here or collectively together. Because we are not separate entities. Somebody in the conference in Northern Illinois asked me, so how do you split your hours between 3ABN and the church? I said, I can't because they're all the same. And when they came down here, they said, we got it. We got it. We're all one in Christ. Can you say amen? But I believe that what Elijah received, what Nehemiah experienced, is what we all are in need of. And today, as we sing this song, if this is your desire, if this is your desire today as we sing this song, if this is what God is saying to you, and if this is what you want, we're going to ask you to do something different because we can now. If, we want, if you want God to reach out and make a difference in your life, to do for you what he did for Elijah and Nehemiah, I want you to come on down here. We're going to pray down front. If this song and this message is what God is speaking to you, Restore authority and 
Father and our God, Lord, we're standing here today as your servants. Dan, play softly for me. As your servants, many of us are broken and wounded in places of our lives. Many of us need the healing hand and the touch of God to revive us. And in some ways, the walls of our lives are broken, our families are injured. And Satan is coming in to create confusion so that the people won't even have the energy to think of dedicating any moments of their lives to the work of the kingdom. But Father, we are asking today that you will touch your people once again with your precious holy hand, we pray. Reach into our complacency and dust off that instrument that we once found great joy in using to carry the gospel forward. Give us a renewed dedication to our Bibles, to the prayer. Help us to bring our family before the altar as the patriarch of the family, that they may know the mission that God has on their lives. I pray for our leaders. Many of us are working. We have so many hats. But so was the case in Nehemiah's day. We pray that we could put on one more hat, Father, when you give us that oomph, that push, that drive. Prosper the work of 3ABN television, 3ABN radio. Prosper the work of our audiovisual department, our YouTube channel, our websites. Prosper the work of working saints, our Bible workers, our personal ministries, our women's ministries, our men's ministries. Prosper our Sabbath school classes and all the outreach of our church. Prosper the deacons, the deaconesses, the elders, and all those who feel the strain and the stresses of these last days, but cause us to be a united army so that as we go out into the venues of this community, there'll be someone who will hear the voice of God calling on them. They will respond, and they will no longer be complacent, and they will say, I'm done sleeping with the enemy. I want to be awake in the work of Christ. 
I want to be covered by the armor of God. I want to be ready for the kingdom to come. Lord, activate a people. Give us a passion for that which heaven longs for to see in the church. Put aside the issues that divide us and help us to embrace the issues that unite us. Forget about the politics and help us to hold on to the Prince of Peace. Give us wisdom to see the God of victory rather than the devil that divides. And may we be as passionate about the kingdom or even more than what the next agenda on the news will be. And when we are standing before you in that glorious day, may that servant who is doing hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Challenge us, send us forth, and may we unite together and perceive that the work will be done by God in willing and glorious hearts. This we pray and we give you all the praise for what you will continue to do and what you will add to your kingdom's work. In Jesus' name I pray. And all of God's people said, Amen and Amen.